Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with acoustic biologist Katie Payne. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Um, Mitch, I'm hearing a slight echo, although very slight. Well, maybe if they close the door, it'll go away. Yeah. What do you think? Th- I, I think yeah, that's, we'll see. They're I just think closing the door. It. Okay. How's that? That's good. <laughs> do mm. you do you have any questions of me before we begin about the show or? Well, I have listened to several recordings that were sent, mm-hmm. and um, I just loved the interview with uh, Wamithi. Oh, Wangari. Um, Mathai. Wangari yes, Wat yes, Mathai. It was just yes. a beauty. Oh, thank you. Um, it's a very nice program. Yeah, good. So, no, I don't know what you're going to ask me, but we'll let me dive in. Well, we can dive we in will. and then we can demolish what we don't want. We will. We will do that. And yeah. Mitch, how are you with levels? Can we just... Okay. He he wants to hear you a little bit more. Um, tell me what you had for lunch. Hello, hello, hello. Oh. Well, I don't really remember. I had salad, I guess. <laughs> how is this doing? <laughs> is it right that you had a you have a daughter who's pregnant? Is that, uh, yes, that was what I <laughs> that was what I was doing when I should have been talking to you. <laughs> I was watching the the new grandchild squirming around inside my daughter. Oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, let's dive in. Um, okay. I usually start my conversations just by talking a little bit about the background of your life, you know, where you grew up. And um, you you grew up on a farm, it sounds like, mo- most, of your, most of those years of your childhood. Is that right? Yes, I spent the first 17 years of my life on a farm uh, on the edge of a waterfall in uh, this area here near Ithaca, New York, called the Finger Lakes region. Um, And this is where I live again now, so my life has sandwiched, uh, uh, and uh, and both the beginning and the end are are here, Mm. upstate New York. Were you Quaker when you were growing up? No, I was sort of a nothing. Uh, uh, I think I sang in what was then called a Quaker meeting, but Quaker meetings shouldn't have singing. So it. <laughs> I sang for the sake of singing. My father uh, was a biologist, a, a, a fruit-growing uh, agricultural farmer guy, and my mother was a scholar who had studied the works of Dante and was very much a humanist, so I had both mm. both sides of possible religion or non-religion uh, available, but mm. uh, became a Quaker by my own choice later as an adult. Mm. And you then in college studied both music and biology. Uh, yes, this is right. <laughs> the, <laughs> well, nobody told me I was going to have to earn my living through what I did in college. And I loved music and uh, wanted to learn a good deal more about it than I'd been able to learn back in the farming days. Um, I wasn't a great musician, but got to sing. Uh, And then after college, um, 
I was married to a biologist, uh, Roger Payne, who became very interested in studying whales. Right. And when we went to sea, we heard for the first time uh, the wonderful sounds that humpback whales make in the ocean. At that time, nobody knew about them. Really? Uh, Nobody knew about the song then? No, they didn't. They didn't know it was a song. This was something we realized. Mm -hmm. You listen for a very long time, and you hear these long sequences of phrases and and notes begin to repeat, and you say, oh, that was a song. Uh, So we were the first, and I spent 15 years then uh, listening to these these ever-changing songs of whales. And by the time I was through, people were calling me a biologist. <laughs> is that what it means when you are referred to as a, what is it, they call you a self-trained acoustic biologist? That you just, oh, yeah, that's is that, pretty good. Is that what it means <laughs> that you just started doing this? Well, I guess it does. <laughs> <laughs> and is acoustic biology a field that many people work in? No, it's a field that a few people work in, and mm-hmm. it really means a biologist who is interested in the uh, sounds produced by animals. Uh, there, I mean, there are quite a lot of them now. Um, of course, many animals make sounds, everything from crickets to humans to whales, birds, mm-hmm. of course, frogs. And uh, these songs, uh, these sounds in the case of animals are thought of in relation to reproduction and courtship in humans, although they may serve exactly the same the same function, they're thought of in relation to aesthetics. Right. And one of the one of the aspects of my work has been to say, look, uh, the same things may be going on. We don't have to have two languages for this. Hmm. So, um, something that's written about you is that you discovered that whale song is always changing. I mean, what what is the significance of that? Well, uh, to me, <clears throat> the significance is that whales, uh, like people, are composers. Um, the songs are very complex. They consist of six to eight themes. Each theme has a melodic phrase that repeats over and over again and then changes to the next one. Um, Let's say, that might be one phrase that would repeat over and over again. And then we, it would, the song would go on to something quite different, whoop, 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 <laughs> or something like that. And so it would continue as a sequence of events, which then as a whole repeat song after song after song. Mm-hmm. But if you keep listening for months on end and then for years on end, uh, you discover that the song, each facet of it, is continually evolving to something slightly different. And all the whales in the ocean or in that singing population are changing their song in the same way. Hmm. So that was something I discovered. And in the end of the day, I had studied 32 years worth of songs, uh, <laughs> many of them in two different populations. And, you know, you so you've worked with whales and then you began to work with elephants and Although those are two very different kinds of creatures, they are 
two of the world's largest and somehow most mysterious, exotic, um, and also somehow intelligent creatures. But tell me the story of how you began to work with elephants then, out of all those years that you'd worked with whales. Well, the, the changing whale song um, was an example of cultural evolution. That is to say, an evolution, a gradual progressive change that was occurring because the animals were learning from each other. It wasn't inborn. Mm-hmm. Um, and a number of people at that time, when, when we were doing that work, were interested in evidence of cultural evolution in various animals. So I was invited to go to the West Coast and participate in a symposium that gathered a number of us to talk about what we were finding. While I was there, just by chance, I learned that in the Portland, Oregon Zoo, uh, a, a baby elephant had been born. In fact, there were three of them, and they were being kept together. Uh, with their mothers who came from different continents as if they were one family. Hmm. So elephants are another very social, as you say, very intelligent, long-lived, huge animal. And I thought it would just be fun <laughs> to sit in the zoo for a week and uh, see if, see what elephants are like. Right. It was a very innocent, playful, childish thing. I was given permission to do this. And I noticed, little by little through that week, that I was feeling over and over again a throbbing in the air, change of pressure in my ears, that would occur when I was near the elephant cages, but not when I was in other parts of the zoo. Mm. And I knew just enough, perhaps because of the whale studies, to know that some that there is sound below the pitches of the sound that human beings can hear as well as sound above. Of course, bats make and hear sound above what we can hear, infrasound. But (laughs) what animals made infrasound? We didn't know except for one whale. I thought, well, maybe what I'm feeling, because it felt like what you feel when you're in the presence of a very loud noise, although I heard nothing. Maybe what I'm feeling is sound too low for me to hear, hmm. but very powerful. So some friends of mine at Cornell University loaned me equipment to go back to the zoo with two partners, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas and Bill Langbauer, to record with equipment that could pick up infrasound. And lo and behold, we discovered there was a whole other communication system there that no one had known about. It was just below the frequencies our ears could hear. And this was a great discovery, wasn't it? I mean, um, as you describe in your work, people, uh, communities who'd lived with elephants had attributed sort of mysterious qualities to them. You wrote about someone who'd said that elephants have ESP. Um, yeah, But you, right. you kind of gave a reason for that. Yes. Uh, everybody was on the verge mm-hmm. of figuring this thing out. Uh, I just happened to know about a little bit about infrasound and uh, guessed that that was what the uh, the elephants were using, and it turned out to be right. You know, what, what really strikes me, though, also in you 
I mean, I think that that must be a certain kind of skill or gift to to feel a sound, right, that is beyond the level of human hearing. You know, you, you tell in your book, um, Silent Thunder, you tell a story about how when you were young, you read the Jungle Book and you were riveted by this password that Mowgli had that allowed him to communicate with the animals. And I have this feeling as I as I read about you that it was this this ability you had to hear even or to feel um, sound beyond what everybody else standing around you might have heard or felt that kind of unlocked that communication for you. Well, thank you. You you give me credit for something very pleasant. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's a, a humbler way to express it, which was that I never really grew up. I think that children... Uh, are aware of all kinds of things uh, that they close themselves off for when they grow up. And that at that in, in that week when I was sitting in the zoo, I was just a child again, and all possibilities were open to me, and, and this one just, there it was. Mm. Right. I mean, I, you use words, I wrote down some of the words you used to describe. You described that the air was thrilling or shuddering or throbbing. And, and perhaps that's true, that the rest of us could experience that, but we're not paying attention on, on that level. Oh, somehow. yes, yes. Go to the zoo and you'll experience it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you could then learn about elephants um, by listening to these infrasonic calls or charting these. You founded something called the Elephant Listening Project in 1999. Yes, this is right. Well, it, it, that was, I think, after about 10 or 12 years mm-hmm. of basic work with people in uh, the Savannah elephant country in Kenya in Zimbabwe and in Namibia, uh, where we were uh, really just recording from free-ranging, undisturbed elephants and trying to figure out how they were using their calls. And we found that uh, there were lots of calls, maybe 70 or more different circumstances in which elephants were calling to one another. Most of them were calls that organized the family. Families in elephants are females related to one another, several, sometimes three, even more generations, uh, who live together and take care of each other's young. Mm-hmm. A, very, a very tight, very integrated um, community. Uh, the males are considered to be outside the families, even though they are, of course, progenitors, but they live a very different kind of social life that involves competition between themselves. Mm-hmm. Most of the calls we found, uh, although there were some calls associated with aggression, some calls association with, associated with moving from one place to the next. Very many of them were calls between calves and their mothers or their, their aunts or their cousins. It, it, it is um, fascinating how you, you're able to, how the, um, paying attention to these sounds and the calls does help you understand the social collective nature of elephant life, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is, and other people are picking up from where we we uh, did our beginnings there in in the Savannah Elephants. The Elephant Listening Project is a little bit different. Uh, after a number of years of of sort of getting the baseline information, 
I got a, I, I was pretty sure that the more calls we were hearing, the more elephants were present. Mm-hmm. Now, this sounds like a pretty obvious conclusion, but actually it's not because there are days when you get very little activity and very little uh, calling, but then there are also other days when there's just a mass of calling. Uh, so I thought overall, I wonder whether we could use numbers of calls to tell us about numbers of elephants. Right, as I oh, understand that didn't make it, any... as I understand it, you were you were studying elephants who live in forests where sightings are rare, where it's difficult to count and to know the numbers just visually. Yes, you're uh-huh. exactly right. So uh-huh. this is what took us to the forest. It was the hunch that we could learn about elephants that we can't see uh-huh. by uh, making recordings of their calls, uh-huh. and the. Elephant Listening Project is doing exactly that, using remote recording devices that can store recorded sounds for long periods of time so that we can plant them in the forest and find out who's there, who's troubled, who's thriving, how big the populations are, how they're using the day and night, how they're using the landscape, Hmm. and that this could then be used Uh, for purposes of conservation. And, you know, I'm very intrigued by the language you use to talk about elephants. You know, in one place you write that you developed um, a profound interest in these extremely social, long-lived beings whose intelligence is informed by deep memories and passions. (laughs) And I wonder (laughs) if you would talk about a few of the elephants who you came to know, and and they had names, didn't they? I mean... Well, yes, they did. (laughs) Um, the passions you see right in front of you, if you just watch a, a, a social group of, of elephants, there's competition, there's play, there's tons of fun. Um, there are attachments among them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the oldest female in a family elephant family group is called the matriarch. She makes most of the decisions, unless you could say that the youngest baby makes most of the decisions. (laughs) She follows very closely what the youngest baby is up to, often her grandchild. Um, On one occasion, when we were watching from an observation tower that stood above a, a, a very large forest clearing, we heard a scream from a baby way over on the east side of the clearing. Well, there were 80 elephants in front of us. But way over on the west side, one huge adult matriarch came running and ran the full length of the clearing. Well, it was the baby's grandmother. Mm -hmm. So there is a passion. There is acquaintance with a call of an animal who probably hasn't made very many calls in her life. And there is this huge sense of responsibility for the welfare of that calf. Mm -hmm. Then we saw uh, one day, this is a very uh, sad and very uh, marvelous thing that we witnessed. We witnessed the death of a a young calf, a yearling calf, uh, on the clearing right in front of our our observation platform. This this baby had come in with her mother uh, repeatedly. She was very thin and weak, and on that day we knew she was going to die. She laid down, and within a couple of hours, indeed, she had died. 
We were keeping a video record. Uh, it was very painful and hard for us to do so. Uh, but we did this for the rest of the day and all the next day. And during that time, more than 100 elephants, unrelated to the calf, walked past the place where the little corpse lay hmm. on the ground. Hmm. Every single one of them did something that showed alarm, uh, concern, or somehow showed they were aware of something novel uh, that they were approaching. Some of them took a detour around. About a quarter of them tried to lift the body up with their tusks and their hmm. trunks, sometimes trying over and over again. One adolescent male attempted to lift up this little corpse uh, 57 times and walked away from it and came back five different times. So there were... Now, the, these were not related animals. Well, how do you understand this what was, was going on? What do you, how do you understand that? You know, I have to interpret it as a human. And I have to say that on this occasion, it seemed that elephants were taking responsibility for other members of their species without regard for relationship at a time when they perceived somehow that help was needed. For, without regard for genetic, for biological kinship, you mean? Yeah. Uh-huh. These were not, these were not, yes, that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. They were not uh, sisters and brothers uh, and aunts and grandmothers. Mm-hmm. They were just passing elephants. And, you know, I think that this this clearing that we we watch um, and and record uh, is kind of like Grand Central Station for elephants. They're coming from <laughs> What's all it called? over the map. What is it? It's called, called Dzanga, D-Z-A-N-G-A. Right. It's the Dzanga Forest Clearing in the Central African Republic, right in the heart of the equatorial rainforest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a place where elephants come from far and wide, from all directions, males, females, infants, and uh, they're coming to drink from mineral pools uh, that they apparently really need those materials because they, they compete over them mm. quite fiercely. But uh, supposing you were in Grand Central Station or use, you know, use any big train or bus or, you know, station uh, that you're familiar with, uh, surrounded by people you didn't know, and suddenly you found... Uh, a youngster in trouble. Um, would you be perturbed hmm. because it's a member of your species? Hmm. Uh, if there was no one caring for it, would you care for it? Hmm. Well, about a quarter of those elephants who passed this body did. And the other three quarters registered some kind of awareness that something was wrong. You know, and I, when I read you, and I, I hear you now, it as a scientist, you're you're very aware of um, thinking about evolutionary pressures and 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 re- reasons for behavior to be as it is, um, and you you you've spent a lot of time thinking about why social cohesion makes practical sense for elephants. But um, you're also documenting behaviors like this, which don't quite make sense um, if you just think about it in evolutionary terms. Um, is that right? Is that a line you feel yourself crossing? or? 
Well, I, I don't know whether I'm crossing a line or whether that line has been too firmly drawn in the past. Mm -hmm. My sense is that <clears throat> community responsibility, um, when it's managed well, uh, results in peace. Um, and peace benefits everyone. Um, that taking care of someone or something to which you are not immediately genetically related uh, pays you back in other dimensions, and the payback is part of your well-being. Hmm. Uh, so the very tight, narrow uh, frame of mind that says only the, the nearest of kin should take best care of one another, yes, that works. But that is not exclusive of a larger framework in which uh, compassion is uh, useful and beneficial for all. Right. I mean, compassion is often a word you use to describe a, a, an ever-present quality, at least especially among the females, the matriarchs and their families and the children. Right. Well, we sure saw a lot of it, and we saw a lot of competition and non-compassion too. Uh -huh. I mean, they, this is a this is a social system, just as humans have a social system in which uh, people fight, uh, people elephants uh, fight for uh, material goods. In the case of elephants, access to the mineral pits. In the case of male elephants, access to the of fertile females. Mm -hmm. So we, we saw everything from soup to nuts. It was all, all very interesting and really all very familiar. Yeah, and very familiar, right. And, and you, you know, you speak about, um, about the elephants as, as being quite emotional. And, you know, even when you talk about other people, even when, as, when, as you learned early on, as you first became interested in elephants, people who'd worked with them for a long time as kind of um, being intrigued and fascinated and affectionate towards them and also finding them quite eccentric and, and uh, tempestuous in a way. And, I'm, you know, how do you, how do you think about emotions and, and this animal? Because that's kind of outside the realm of um, human thinking about animals much of the time. Well, it, it shouldn't be outside our realm. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in elephants... Emotions are particularly apparent. I, I would say that if there's an animal uh, that is, on the whole, more emotional than human beings, it's elephants. Uh, really? They have, yeah, they have fits of delight and, and, and fits of uh, frustration. And, uh, uh, and when, when a group of elephants that has been separated, even for a few hours, comes together... Uh, we, we would see, you know, members of the group on different sides of the clearing, and we would say, oh, they're soon going to meet. So we would focus our cameras and our attention on one of them. When they met, it was the most marvelous show of total New Year's Eve family <laughs> reunion excitement, <clears throat> as if they'd been apart for years. Uh, but actually, it was only since 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> they they rush together, twirl their trunks together, um, uh, roar, urinate, defecate, defecate, flap their ears, and uh, the whole thing says that each individual is overcome with excitement. Hmm. 
You know, earlier on, um, when you and I first began to speak, you you talked about how um, we scientists, human human observers, had previously thought about animal sounds as uh, very pragmatically oriented kinds of communication, having to do with mating, for example. Um, and you didn't want to draw the line quite that sharply. You said that in in human cultures, sound also has aesthetic value. And I mean. It sounds to me like you also see different levels of um, meaning in sound among these elephants, too. Uh, we don't know enough about it for me to say anything at all authoritative about that. Yeah. Um, I just feel that it's, uh, it's a shame to classify humans as the only organisms that are capable of aesthetic values mm-hmm. or of any kind of values at all. Um, Humans have everything, as I said, from soup to nuts. We <laughs> we make war. We don't know any other animals who make war uh, with a vehemence and, and, and comprehensiveness of, of human wars. Uh, we're the most terrible animals that way. Um, and the justifications uh, for violence and, and, and harm, uh, I can tell you about them because I understand human languages, but we do not understand nearly enough about any animal language to be, a- be able to go into these, these realms at all. Mm-hmm. But when we look at, I'm going to move now to the whales, mm-hmm. when we look at the enormous energy that goes into creating, continuously creating new, very complex songs and learning them so that all the individuals in a singing population are moving from one to the next to the next, we have to ask ourselves first, as maybe as evolutionists, what's driving this? And the only sensible answer that the biologists can come up with is, well, the females like originality. <laughs> Now, are we talking about whales or people? Right. Right? You see, the biologists themselves cross the line Hmm. when they talk about something they call sexual selection, which is the preference by the animal that will choose a mate for a mate that's either original or has a longer tail or a more beautiful plume or a a different kind of song. Hmm. So I think we don't want to, to cut off the possibility that other animals are in in many ways as complex and uh, interesting uh, as uh, as humans. Mm. And you have referred to, you were listening to elephants, but you've also referred to elephants as great listeners. Um, yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah they, they do something marvelous that I I wish we would do more of the time. This is something you do find in Quaker meetings, actually, and in Buddhist meetings as well. Um, the whole herd, and it may be 50 animals, will suddenly be still, completely still. Hmm. And it's not just a stillness of voice. It's a stillness of body. So you'll be watching a moving herd They'll be all over the place. They'll be facing all directions, doing different things. Suddenly, everything freezes. 
as if a movie was turned into a still photograph. And the freeze may last a whole minute, which is a long time. Mm -hmm. They're listening. When they freeze, they tighten and lift and spread their ears. This tells us, this among other things, tells us that they're concerned with what's going on over the horizon. Mm. They're listening probably for other elephants. And this infrasound that you have charted um, can carry across long distances, can't it? Yes, yes, it, it can. Um, depending on the atmospheric conditions, uh, it can travel several miles and uh, actually maybe very much farther. But the experiments that we did to show the distances uh, over which elephants were responding to each other's infrasonic calls. We were just taking responses, visible responses, as our sign of, uh, of hearing. Oh, I see. They may have heard a lot that they didn't respond to in ways that we recognized. Hmm. Well, speaking of silence, <laughs> tell, me, tell me that story about uh, how you became Quaker and, and how that intersects uh, with this work you do. Oh, that's a big question. Yeah. Well, I I guess I've always felt that a simpler life would be a good thing for me. Um, Quakers are wonderful practicers of simplicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, they attempt to get their worldly affairs down to a dull roar so that they they can help a little bit in uh, um, meeting some of the world's needs. I like that. Mm. And I find that um, meditation, which sometimes I've done as a Quaker, sometimes in, in other forms, I, I don't know, I shouldn't maybe use the word meditation, just being silent. Um, is a most wonderful way to open up to what is really there. Hmm. I see, um, I see my responsibility, <laughs> if I have one, as being to listen. <laughs> um, my church is outdoors, mostly. Um, what's sacred to me is is this planet we live on. It's been here for more than four billion years. Life has been on it only for three billion years. Life as we know it, you know, for a very short time. It's the only planet where life has been found. And that, to me, I think is ultimately, you know, what I consider sacred. And have you been able to, um, I mean, uh, uh, practicing Quaker spirituality is not that something that requires uh, buildings and, <laughs> and hierarchies and structures. So I'm thinking the answer is yes to this question, you know, whether you've been, a- been able to practice this um, wherever you were. I mean, you were living on the coast of Argentina for a while, then you were, have been in Africa with your elephants. Has this been part of your routine 
Yes, although I, I am not sure the Quakers would want to claim me right now, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> because all I can say is that it, uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's a way of life uh, toward which I aspire. Um, it's very easy uh, to forget what you wanted to be or what you wanted to even do, uh, even in the course of a single day, uh, a quiet a period of quiet will help you um, stay in touch with those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And and I must say that I don't feel one form of faith is, is better than another. I, I have deep respect for all people of deep faith of any sort. I think that... Well, if, if, if I could ask these animals that I like so much... If there's anything equivalent to uh, what we speak of as being faith, uh, I would love to do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> we just don't know. Yeah. We just don't know. Uh-huh. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the moral issues that come up in the work you do, which are also complex. Um, you know, you describe in one place... Um, that this acoustic monitoring that you do um, provides recordings of animal sounds and also of in, in these thick forests where you, these things can't be seen, but it also records human presence um, in the form of gunshots, chainsaws, and seismic and vehicle noise. Um, I guess it sounds like the elephant tusks when they're removed um, are moved by chainsaws, which is a pretty violent image. Um, and so you, you, you've always, it seems to me, been rubbing up against this, what happens when animals and human beings live together and, and live together with some competing interests. Oh, boy, you are so wonderfully articulate. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I feel like yes, I... Yes, this, this is true. Um <laughs> uh, if you study an endangered species, um, you are going to find out that the reason it's endangered in 99% of the cases is because of human uh, activities, human exploitation, or perhaps just because of crowding, just because mm-hmm. uh, humans are taking up uh, environments that were, or changing environments that were previously inhabited by animals. Uh, now, Having said that, I immediately realized that of the six mass extinctions that we know about, some of them took place before humans and are explained by uh, seismic activity of the earth and and climate changes in the earth. But nowadays, uh, when we are finding that one out of every four mammalian species is is judged to be uh, at risk for... uh, extinction in the near future, we have a lot to worry about because uh, unless humans control their own activities, we will lose the biodiversity, we will lose the, the diversity of plants and animals that make uh, the earth a habitable place hmm. for them and for us. Um, much more practically and, you know, in a much tinier scale, what we're up against uh, in the case of elephants in the forests is poaching. Right. Poaching is done by people, some of whom are perfectly innocent of, 
of all kinds of <laughs> bad intentions who are hungry, yeah. uh, who are brought in uh, by lumber companies that are cutting wood, um, uh, who are paid for by Asian uh, importers of ivory or indeed who are getting bush meat. Right. Um, there are lots of people on this earth. Mm -hmm. And the people in the Central African forest area tend to be very poor um, and very needy. Right. And you know, I find so, this very striking in your stories mm -hmm. that clearly poaching is something you are against, and yet you're always realizing that it's often a correlate of poverty or of local uprisings. And, and so it's not so simple to divide the world into good guys and bad guys. No, and I don't want to do that mm -hmm. uh, uh, at all. Um, I think that whatever uh, uh, relief to the situation uh, comes is going to come as a result of a lot of integrated effort of people who are helping in human development, helping the people, uh, people who are interested in wildlife conservation. Hmm and people who are using law enforcement in a considered and careful way to protect a marvelous species uh, that's in danger of extinction. These elephants in the African rainforest are living in an amazingly diverse place. There's, it, it's one of the ironies of our situation is that the places where you find most uh, you know what I mean by diversity? Mm -hmm. You find most kinds of animals and plants tend to be the places uh, uh, um, where people are poorest. Right. And so, you know, we've got a lot to think about. Now, that's an interesting link you're drawing between wildlife conservation and taking care of human beings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> well, look, there's a lot that we who have too much can do about this because of one of the very big driving forces that leads to the exploitation of the forests and of the minerals that are in the forests uh, is could be called greed on the part of people in the developed countries. Mm -hmm. We don't need to have as much. We don't need to use so much gas. We don't ha need to have all those SUVs. We can use other kinds of energy, uh, and so forth and so on. If each of us restricts our own lives to what we really need, there'll be more for everyone. But, you know, I think that's a hard equation for people to feel. Do you know what I mean? I mean, on the one hand, when you talk about um, the places you've seen and the, the crises you know, um, it's so far away. It's so hard for people just to connect that with the car they drive. You know, even if they do it intellectually. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's our task, you see. Here you are on the radio. Here we are mm. on the radio. Our task is to make this real. Hmm. These are this planet. This planet is the only place where we have this kind of life. Right. Let's not blow it. <laughs> and you know, there's another. Um, uh, uh, what do you want to call it, a policy that has been morally perplexing and I think um, very distressing for you. That's not poaching, but it's what they call culling elephants in areas where 
it seems, the elephant population is simply too, has grown to a, to a level that is uncomfortable for the human population, where it feels crowded for everyone. And this is a policy of systematically killing elephant groups um, in order to make room. Talk to me about that and your reactions to that, how you yes, wrestle with something like that. Well, I, I wrestled with it a good deal in the book called Silent Thunder mm-hmm. in the Presence of Elephants. Uh, the situation has only grown a great deal more uh, extreme since that time okay. because elephants have been confined in southern African uh, savanna uh, areas to spaces not occupied by people and have, uh, and have multiplied their numbers in those areas. Uh, and meanwhile, the human population uh, is growing. And so is there a got, competition simply for food um, or for land? What is the competing interest that takes place? Well, it's really for land, uh, and the uh, but it's for food as well. Mm-hmm. Elephants, which are particularly uh, when they are struck by a drought, both elephants and people will be hungry and thirsty. The crops will fail, and both of them will uh, will use the human crops. Okay. And then there, and then there will be a, a conflict. Uh, there was recently a very disturbing and I think very appropriate um, article in the New York Times magazine, yes. mm-hmm. uh, which I think was called "Are We Driving Them Crazy?" Yes, <laughs> uh, and it was a report on the fact that in many uh, southern, particularly southern uh, African regions, where we get this conflict. The elephants are becoming belligerent, so that they are actually uh, killing people and destroying villages, as it were, unnecessarily, not in the midst of a contest for crop food, but just... And the implication was belligerent and depressed, I mean, kind of mentally damaged, right? Sure. Well, it's all very understandable, and it's terribly disturbing. And I have to say that I'm... I don't have an answer for this at the moment. I don't know. I'm just disturbed about it, too. Mm-hmm. Calling, I think, is a, a terrible um, thing to do because calling means killing uh, groups, uh, groups of elephants, attempting to get family groups, but it's never possible to just do that. Elephants live in extended families and rely on communication over, over long distances. And, of course... What you have in the aftermath of a call is a, uh, a displaced, uh, disrupted, uh, uh, dismembered population with all the same sorts of problems that you get when that happens in a war zone. Right. You know, you use a lot of war analogies, war poetry <laughs> huh. in your writing. I noticed that and I... I didn't feel that it was intentionally making that comparison, but um, it did seem to be somehow a relevant kind of analogy to make. Um, well, thank you. I suppose it was subconscious. It, it is uh, World War One. You have a lot of that references to World War One. Uh, huh. This is um, this is a piece of of uh, of what I know that I don't know how to. How to deal with? Uh-huh. I, I'm I'm a pacifist. Right. 
Right, and yet you're as aware of the complexity of these clashes as anyone could be and the real needs that are on each side. Yes, yes, I, I just am, yes. <laughs> and I think... Sorry, I can't give no, you that, an answer. Well, I, no, I think just naming things is really important. I, yes. I, I'm curious about the, the New York Times article um, in terms of, which suggested that elephants are really again, kind of being mentally damaged, I think is that kind of analysis is is made possible by some of the work you've done, which does show that these creatures have memories also of relationships. and well, yes, uh, i I'm not sure that well, perhaps the mental damaging is a satisfactory explanation. I see a simpler one, okay. Um, matriarchs, old uh, females, uh, elephants have long memories. They really do. Right. <laughs> it's not um, just an old saying. Oh, hey, it really uh, is not. And I can tell you, I can give you a little bit of evidence mm-hmm. of that. Um, but let me just say that the uh, old females are setting the course for the families. And as they conflict more and more with human beings at the borders of the human el- uh, you know, areas, um, and are themselves treated, uh, uh, experiencing uh, more and more damage to their their societies. Uh, they're probably teaching their kids mm. uh, to go out and hmm. kill somebody. Gosh. I mean, it's, it, it, again, you can, I'm just guessing. Yes. And again, because there's so much similarity in hel- elephant and human, society, uh, I'm guessing, on the basis of what happens with people. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you uh, an interesting thing. Um, When uh, there have been two episodes, two two stories that tell the same story. Uh, um, Once uh, in the very beginning out in the Portland, Oregon Zoo, we recorded the voice of an old matriarch named Rosie. Uh, who happened to have a granddaughter also in in the herd. Uh, some 10 years later, eight or 10 years later, I was invited back to the zoo to participate in a television documentary, and I said I would do it if we could do a little experiment. I would just like to play those sounds that we recorded from Rosie to the group. <laughs> and Rosie had been dead for several years. But her granddaughter, Sunshine, was still alive and there. And when we played these calls, the elephants went into paroxysms of groaning Hmm. and roaring. Hmm. There was a keeper there named Roger who had been their keeper for 20 years. He had visited on the day I was there just to see his old buddies again. And he said he'd never seen anything like this. Well, I do expect that they were recognizing that voice. Mm-hmm. And there was another uh, example given by uh, Karen McComb, a recorder in uh, Amboseli Park, of uh, similar reactions of elephants recognizing the voice of a dead matriarch. So it's, you know, there's a real memory, and voice is part of it. Right, right. There's something very physical about this kind of memory and this kind of emotion. Hmm. 
I also, as I read what you've written, see you learning enriching and contradictory things from the Africans who live in proximity to elephants all of their lives, who you came to work with and know as friends. Yes, I was immensely lucky um, for two years to work among Ndebele and Shona people out in the bush in Zimbabwe uh, and actually live very close to them up on top of a high escarpment in tents uh, for one field season. Uh, what did we do when the sun went down? We, we sat by the fire and talked. <laughs> they spoke very beautiful English. Um, they had not been aware of the side of elephant behavior that I was able to expose them to because they had been guards in, uh, working for the national parks and their jobs were really to con you know, take care of roads and do all kinds of things, but not to get very close to these So animals. they were just they hadn't didn't... been attentive to that even though they'd been living with them. No, they hadn't had the opportunity. Uh. The, the opportunity I'd had to come close up into the middle of living groups of elephants in Amicelli Park in Kenya was very unusual. And this was a place where elephants had been culled in Zimbabwe. Hmm. So the people, the, the elephants were scared of people, and we, we only could see them far away from the top of the escarpment. But what I had the privilege of doing was to learn about a really communal human society <laughs> uh, by talking to these men and hearing their their wonderful stories and seeing how, even though they came from two different tribes who were in, uh, when they were in the city, they were hostile to each other, they formed a brotherhood and uh, would die for each other. And it was a pretty, it was a pretty, you know, moving and lovely It seems kind of an thing. echo of the communal elephant societies sure. that you were watching. Yeah. Well, I, you know, but you, it's, it's what you would expect. Communal societies have got to work on the basis of something larger than individual desire. Mm. You, you tell stories about a man named Zacchaeus, and uh, I think that name is striking just because there's that biblical story of Zacchaeus, which uh, many people have heard in Sunday school, and he was someone who made a big impression on you. Yeah, he, he did. And, and uh, when I go back to Zimbabwe, I always go and find him. Actually, the last time I went, Zimbabwe is in a lot of trouble now. Yeah. Uh, he was still up at the uh, place that where we had done our research, but it is no longer a, a research area. It's now a hunting safari area. Oh. Um, and the connection between the place <clears throat> and the... Uh, National Parks Office was cut off. Oh. Uh, the only way you could get a message was to send it with a bus driver who would give it to another bus driver who would give it to another bus driver. As these buses went from village to village, a little packet of messages would be transferred. <laughs> so I spent, I, I had a couple of weeks, and uh, before I went, I, I sent a message to be sent to, to Zacchaeus. Um, and then I just stayed in one place. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, after five days, he appeared. Uh, it was the most marvelous thing. 
he had gotten the message. Tell me how you think about him and the relationship you had with him, what you learned from him in the context of what you were learning about, you know, in general with your work there as a scientist. How did that all fit together? Well, I, I, I might say that um, as a scientist, I just learned that when you work with a very responsible person, anything is possible. Mm. But as a humanist, I would say that I learned that dreams, which have an intense meaning for me sometimes, um, are, are mysterious messengers who inform and help people uh, who may not have very much uh, material help in their lives. Um, that there was a tremendous health in this man who was, who was a leader of men. He was a spiritual leader among all the people in Sangwa. Um, Oh, gosh, what can I say? And that had to do with dreams. I think that's an interesting relationship that you It had to do with dreams. Between dreams, um, that there's a perhaps a, a relative dearth of material um, reality or possessions. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And then, but then there's this rich dream life that, that rises up where that might be, where our concern with those things might be. Yes, that's quite true. Uh, quite true. There's huh. a, a rich dream life. There's also a rich dance life. <laughs> the uh, children in these communities did not have toys. Uh, they didn't have many clothes, but they had their bodies. And you should see them dance. <laughs> they could dance for hours and hours and hours, always with new compositions. <laughs> they were... They were like the whales with their music. It was always something new, always something you could imitate. It was intense expression of emotion, of fun, a form of play. And I thought to myself, why do we need toys? Hmm. <laughs> Did, well, yeah, go on. Yeah, no, I, I'm going to think about whether I should tell you about a dream. But go I'd ahead. like, no, I'd really like to hear about a dream. Please tell me. <laughs> Please tell me. That's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah, more yeah, about. yeah. Okay, I don't know where dreams come from. Um, but on the night of the day that I realized we had, had discovered this, this, this immense amount of communication that no one had known about in elephants, I, um, I fell asleep and dreamed... And I dreamed that I was surrounded by elephants. Now, at that time, I had only seen Asian elephants in a zoo. In my dream, I was surrounded by African elephants on a flat piece of savanna. And I was naked and lying in the middle, and they were reaching out to me with their trunks, sniffing me the way elephants do. Right. And then the matriarch of the group, spoke. Well, you know, I didn't hear her voice, but I heard the words, and they were in English because that's what I understand. <laughs> and she said, we did not reveal this to you so that you would tell other people. Huh. So I woke knowing that the elephants had revealed it to me. 
not that I had discovered something. Okay, okay. See, yes. see, that was the message. But did that mean that they didn't want you to share this knowledge? Beats me. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> but I think you felt compelled to share the knowledge because you care about their fate. Oh, yes, and for my own sake, it was uh, a selfish desire as well yeah. to go find out what was going on. I, I couldn't do that without telling someone. <laughs> um, I don't know. It, I mean, it, it could have been, we didn't do this so that you would use what you told us to make yourself rich and famous, uh-huh. but rather so that you would use it to help us yeah. or to include you in our society to the extent that you felt a responsibility to us. Mm-hmm. You know, you write in your book, in your, which is part memoir, Silent Thunder, about going home and the conflicting feelings you had. And, you know, after speaking with you here for a little while, I can really imagine those. And um, just the contrast between the world you'd been living in, the world you're in now, and... Um, in the United States. And you also wrote, and I thought this was very ironic and quite brave and honest of you to write down, you know, here I would be posting signs around my 14 acres, once held communally by the Cayuga Indians, private property trespassing for any purpose is <laughs> strictly prohibited. <laughs> um, I don't know. How do, you, how do you live differently coming back here? Um, how do you struggle perhaps differently with things that we are taken for granted that you do anyway <laughs> because, <laughs> because you're here? <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, I'd say I do a pretty shabby job yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I'm, I'm aware. You know, I'm aware. I, I'm, I'm aware of how lucky I've been uh, to have these experiences. Um, what can you do? Yeah. You know, I mean, I love my land, and I don't really want it to be overrun with people. I love the fact that there are beavers on it and, <laughs> and deer and uh, herons, and, you know, it's wonderful to me as a wild place. And so I suppose what I do is to take the overarching feeling of love for nature as my excuse to live on the edge of a, of a lovely uh, natural um, place, which I protect as part of the Finger Lakes Land Trust. I see. It, it's, it's, it's a different standard, mm-hmm. but it's the same standard. I see. You, you also learned when you came back, for example, that a friend of yours, that his wife had been killed by an elephant, right? Someone you'd worked with, yeah, with the elephants. Right, right. You learned that some of the elephants you'd followed and known intimately as personalities with names like Miss Piggy and Friday, right. that they had been right. called. Right. Then um, I went into a depression <laughs> for a year or so and decided not to do any more elephant studies for a while, but to try to write about um, that experience really for the purpose of coming to terms with it. Um, it was a very interesting thing to do. One of the things that uh, I found when I looked at the park's records on these animals was that they were valued for the weight of their tusks. The animals who'd been culled. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they were animals we had just begun to know 
as individuals. I guess one of the one of the points I, I I should make is that a remarkable thing about elephants is the individuality of each one. Mm-hmm. Again, a very human-like quality. Um, although it's very tempting when you're doing the first studies of the social behavior of an animal to lump them and say elephants are like this. Right. The fact is that one from the next, they're tremendously different and individualistic. Mm. And we saw this in their movement patterns. Uh, we saw this in their family groupings. Uh, Ms. Friday uh, was an animal who didn't have a family. And we suspected that she was a, the victim of a previous call. Mm. Um, Crooked Tusk was a tremendously powerful matriarch uh, who had an ally in another matriarch, and they they monopolized the best resources. <laughs> so and and had the largest families, mm. and always hung out together in large groups. So you could see these these very interesting uh, differences uh, from individual to individual and family to family. And maybe you could also see the logic in the fact that they were taken because they did monopolize so much territory or that they were called yeah yeah no i don't think it was very logical i think that those those animals that were called were those that that you know were apparent under the helicopter when it was roaring around yeah i mean that this is brutal yeah i mean i want to ask you some questions that are kind of large and i don't i think they're hard to answer but you know we've talked a little bit about your quaker spirituality i mean how 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 does this body of experience that's part of you and this passion, you know, how does this shape you spiritually? Has it changed your practices or your sense of, I don't know, what's happening in silence or who you're praying to? Or well, you hear you hear in me a silence because I'm not sure I've analyzed it. Um, I'll say that my awareness of the earth as almost an organism in itself, as a, a body that has had enormous changes affecting it over the billions of years that it has been in existence, um, has only come into my awareness as one of the characters on my palette, should we say. Mm-hmm. Um, it, recently, when I took a basic course, Geology 101, this fall, <laughs> and was blown away to realize how changing it is, mm-hmm. um, how little control, really, we, we have over it, but how absolutely beautiful and uh, vulnerable. Uh, our time, how beautiful and vulnerable our time on this planet is. The earth hasn't always been habitable. It soon won't be habitable again. But we are the lucky ones because we're here <laughs> now. And I just give a very general thanks for that. <laughs> I, I can't really say to whom or what. I just feel enormously grateful to it, for it. How do you think, this is another hard question, how do you think working, you know, intimately knowing 
whales and the songs of whales and animals and their social lives and their song their and the, the, them as listeners these this work you do this passion you have how how does that make you think differently about what it means to be human well the ocean is really huge when you get out on a little boat you know it you're clinging to a cork <laughs> Uh, it's huge, and it's capable of immense hugeness. And out there, you know, rolling around and swimming through and perfectly at home in the waves are these enormous animals. And by golly, they're singing of all things. <laughs> they're doing something that we recognize as singing. Mm-hmm. And so I, what, what that has done for me is to make me feel that what lies ahead to be discovered is absolutely limitless. We are not at the pinnacle of human knowledge. We are just beginning. Hmm. Um, this is wonderful. I want to ask my colleagues behind the glass if they have questions um, they'd like me to ask you. So I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I listen through my headphones. Okay. How about our visitors? Anybody have a question? Okay. <laughs> we have some students here today from Mississippi. They were just learning what we do, and they're listening in on this interview. I It is so delightful to talk to you. Um, I think we're done, and um, I'm just really grateful. I, I loved reading your work and uh, speaking with you, and, and I'm just so happy to know about what you do and what you know. So thank you. Well, thank you very, very much to you and for your thoughtful uh, summaries and questions. I appreciate it very well, much. We'll, um, we will let you know exactly what's happening with this, and you'll have a copy, and, um, and uh, you know, we can send you some more CDs if you'd like. Um, I did a program on the spiritual, the soul and depression. <laughs> you talked about your depression, and with Parker Palmer is in that, oh. talking about that and his Quaker spirituality. So I'd love to send you that if you'd be interested. Oh, I'd be very, very interested. Yeah. And if you would like, um, I could send you some sounds of whales and elephants. Yes, we we would absolutely like that. And uh, we'd already talked about that. If you, you've heard the program, you know, all the programs are different, but we'd really like to use sound richly in this hour because of the work you do. So, um, yeah, uh, if you could send anything on CD, that would be preferable, but we'll take whatever you've got. And... Um, yeah, you've been communicating with Jody. She or my colleague Mitch Hanley will probably be in touch with you directly, and maybe they can email you addresses and things. And we 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 would just love anything you've got. We can get it back to you if you want, but we will use it. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's great. All right. Thank Thanks you so much. Yeah. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Hi, this is Bert from uh, the studio. Hi there. Hi, I, uh, Katie did bring some of her music with her, and uh, her, I mean her sounds with her, so <laughs> you can even do that here at the studio and upload it to you or however you'd like to do that. Oh. Well, Bert, I think maybe I'll just make a selection and mail it to them. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. And I have a digital backup of the raw interview here, just in case. Great. That's wonderful. Okay. Thanks so much for your help, Bert. You're welcome. Thank you, Miss Payne. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.